good evening to you at the end of Fellowship Day 312. Not as long between recordings this time as I made a point of saying last time. But anyway, here we are. I am scraping my way up to the microphone to share this recording with you because it's at the end of a day where I've spent the vast majority of it putting together one of our next research papers our next academic papers and therein oh my god I'm using words like therein you can tell I've been writing all day especially writing a formal academic paper when you're using words like therein additionally and trying to avoid words like pleasingly it gratified us to see that oh god right, I, I'm boring myself saying this moving on quickly moving on moving on I mention it because a lot of the challenge of writing this particular paper is that we're dealing with trying to share a concept that's very abstract, but at the same time, we're trying to pull it back into reality and make it a measurement of sorts that will be genuinely useful to chemists, to practitioners. It's, in short, it's something to help follow how well something's mixing over time. So capturing the chemists and non-chemists in the audience anytime you make a cup of tea when you see the the dark brown or, or blackness of the the cup of tea and then you add in some milk and stir it you can see the swirls as as the dark becomes light as the as the milk meets the the water and the tea leaves and you can see the change in colour you can tell that when you've you know, you've swirled around the teaspoon enough times to get sufficient mixing of the milk into the tea. And we've been working on something like that, but with more of a chemistry focus, understanding that sort of problem can be really important in taking useful chemical processes from the size of a teacup up to the size of a swimming pool and beyond. But this thing, this this way of describing mixing that we're looking at is is so abstract that that's why I've spent most of the day writing. I've spent most of the day trying to understand the thing that we've put together. It's not easy. And if it's going to be of any use, we need to understand it more deeply first before we try to put it in the hands of anyone else. We need to, to use a term that I love from my more entrepreneurial work. We need to reduce it to practice. A lot of the time we're talking about entrepreneurial ventures. If something is to be patentable or protected in some other way, we describe it in such a way as to understand what's the unique intellectual property that has helped take a concept and reduce it to practice, turn it into a product. And right now we're in a more academic side of that with what I've described today. We are taking an abstract concept and trying to reduce it to practice, to make it understandable, to make it something that can be another tool in the bag of the chemist who wants to understand the fullness of the problems they're working on. And we're not there yet. That's all I really want to say about it. We are in the midst of trying to pull it into useful reality. And a lot of what we've we've read on route to now, a lot of the papers that came before ours, a lot of the work, you know, outside the bubble of academia that describes the same sort of mixing phenomenon has been lovely to read, academically satisfying, 
intellectually uplifting in many ways but there's a lot of it out there where then there's the brick wall of between the the academic rigor and the the practical implementation of that academic rigor we are currently trying to scale that wall if you like and all of this this challenge as a scientist to pull yourself out of the abstractions away from the jargon and into the world of wider impact it takes both genuine effort technically but also genuine effort socially what i mean by that is there's there's probably a, a part of it that's an exercise of taking away your ego you know using big words and and technical language can serve to make you sound more clever than you actually are certainly that's the way i feel about it sometimes showing my deep insecurities about being a scientist but at the same time there's many occasions where jargon and technical language are used as a protective moat to to ward others away from encroaching on a particular area of study that they might contribute to but feel that having read it in such deep technical terms it's not worth the effort to try to get into and although this sounds quite cynical oftentimes it's just not the case it's just that the thing that someone has been warded away from has just been deliberately written in opaque overly technical jargon jumping terms uh, to scare you away we're trying to move from the scary domain into the approachable one with this problem again i said we're not there yet but we're working on it um, all of it has reminded me of a piece that i wrote a while ago on the delights and dangers of abstraction how we can use abstractions to package up more complex problems but all the while the package that we put more complex more fundamental ideas into can sometimes make us forget what's inside that package what's inside the black box so you <laughs> with my uh, many stops and starts here you can see that my mind is absolutely melted with what we've been thinking about today but let me share this piece with you now and as always try to leave you with some sort of valuable prompt or consideration that you can take away from the selfish frame of my own scientific problems and recast them and reuse them for your own purposes so here we go without further ado please enjoy this very short audio essay on the delights and dangers of abstraction quote we must be careful not to confuse data with the abstractions we use to analyze them from william james american philosopher abstraction is a human superpower it's thinking sideways the process that enables us to condense complex multi-part objects into simpler blueprints with abstraction we can automate the boring stuff under the push of a button but what happens if the button breaks physicist paul dirac's eponymous equation 
the first to predict antimatter, hides the beautiful collision of quantum mechanics and special relativity, each of which are textbook topics in their own right. Programmers execute thousands of lines of code with a single command. Most of us live in towns and cities whose layout of shops, emergency services, roads and drains is no accident. 3D artists can craft an animated Disney blockbuster without having ever taken a geometry class. And most of us tell the time without awareness of the cogs under the watch face. Collections of fundamental ideas can be packaged up into boxes that we can take for granted. We need never peer inside. Abstraction gives us the building blocks from which to build more complex systems. So what happens when what we've built comes crumbling down? What can we do when we're no longer able to use the blocks because we've forgotten how to look inside the box they came in? Abstraction, for all its wonders, can also lead us to miss the underlying mechanisms that make the particles dance, the code run, the city thrive and the clock tick. Even if you're the ideas person, the boss, the delegator, the executive, the person who leaves the details to the experts, consider this nonetheless. How would you build what you envisage if the expert team members you relied on all disappeared tomorrow? How can you impress upon your team the delights and the dangers of abstraction? I hope this finds you well. Thanks again for being here. Don't forget that if you want to reach out to me with a question or a comment, you can do so on any of the podcast web pages. For now, take care, and I'll see you again soon for another episode of the Read Indeed podcast. Mm-hmm.